At my last church in California, where I was uh, a senior pastor, I took over a, a sick church plant that had fallen apart. It had gone from like 180 people down to 19 or 20 people. Uh, and, and it was just sad. And so uh, I took that, took that church plant, uh, our mother church, where I had um, been associated with the mother church for, for many years. Uh, I had done all the Greek exegetical work for the senior pastor before I went to seminary. Um, and so they knew me. And so uh, I eventually, when I uh, uh, was in a position to, to pastor that church, they asked me if I would come and uh, pastor it and fix it. It just took 19 years to work on it. So... Um, so it was, it was a lot of fun. So after I went there when my, I was 31, my kids were little. Uh, most of the church at that time, they were all in our early 30s, uh, and we all had kids. And so over 19 years, I watched the little children uh, become young you know, men and women. I did their weddings. It was amazing. It was kind of scary. Um, watching all these kids grow up, go to college, and I'm doing the weddings. Uh, a lot of people passed away. Uh, I did a lot of funerals at that church, more, more than I actually do here. Uh, and, uh, and it was just, uh, it was a great opportunity and I, it was a smaller church. It was around 200, 250. So I could, I, I, I knew everybody after 19 years, um, I could, I could sit at lunch and say, who wasn't at church today? Now, I don't even know if, you know, most, if you're visiting or, or you, have you been here for five years? I may not know because of the amount of people that are here. So it's, this is a different environment for me. Uh, but I was there for 19 years, so it was, it was a lot of fun. And I was the chaplain for 1,300 uh, sheriff's officers, so I did both of those things. It was a lot of, a lot of fun. But there came the time that I left uh, when I felt God was finished uh, with what he wanted me to accomplish. Uh, and my wife felt the same way, uh, and God uh, moved us here across the country. Uh, but there was that last Sunday after 19 years that I was going to preach to those people. And I thought long and hard about what I was going to say to them. Because uh, I knew them well, and I knew what they needed to hear. Uh, and so I crafted that message to, to be my final challenge to them as a church. Uh, it was emotional. Um, uh, it was educational. It was motivational. Uh, and, uh, but it, it was hard. And there will come the day when I give you my final message here. You realize this, right? No. no. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> uh, yes, it will, it will eventually happen. But... Uh, um, I mean, not, not anytime soon, but maybe next week, but <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, but I'll, you know, one day I'll retire. And at this point, you know, I'm probably not going to want to take a new church and, you know, try to do that. And when I'm into my seventies at that point, but, um, but there's that final message and a pastor has to speak that to the people that he knows and he loves. And so, uh, when I was reading this passage this week, uh, Paul's final words to the Thessalonians, it's kind of like that. He's the pastor. He loves them. He's, he, he led them to Christ. Uh, he's helped them grow up in the faith. He's writing them in his last letter. These are important words. Uh, and if you came here for a three point sermon, you are going to be sorely disappointed, uh, because it is not a three-point sermon. It is a five-point heretical sermon. I'm just saying. Five points uh, that we're going to talk about. And Paul doesn't really have a main idea here. If you're looking for, like, the main idea, um, it's not really a main idea because he's the pastor sharing his final parting words to his church. So he's just kind of sharing from his heart, just kind of this thought, that thought, that type of thing. So I've, I've entitled Paul's words here, uh, Sound Pastoral Desire for uh, Christ's Local Church. Because what he's going to tell the Thessalonians transcends time because it's inspired by the Spirit of God. So what is true of them is also true of us. So there's much for us to learn here. So what are the five things that he shared with them that are things that we should probably pay attention to? Okay. 
not that it's my last Sunday, but what things are important? Uh, well, the very first one up in, in verse 23, uh, I've just summarized this. Well, you need to get holy. And that's basically what any pastor wants from his people is that they, number one, come to have a faith relationship with Jesus and they're saved. And then second, that they get holy, that they move away from that which is not holy to that which is holy. Uh, Paul talks about this all over the place in his letters, uh, this passage included. In Romans 12, notice what he told the Roman church. Um, Don't be conformed to this world. That's easy, right? It's easy to be conformed to the world, and it's, and it's easy to be tempted to be conformed to the world because you want to fit in, you want to have friends, etc. Don't be conformed to the world, but on the contrast, he says, be transformed as a Christian by the renewing of your mind. Why? Well, so you can prove what the will of God is in any given situation. Uh, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. I mean, that which is holy. How do I know? This versus that. Well, your mind needs to be renewed. And so spirituality, that when Paul's going to challenge the Thessalonians to get holy, uh, it's, this is spirituality. So spirituality is first internal long before it's external. Uh, now, a legalist is going to say holiness is about what you do on the external. No, it's what you do on the inside. It's your mind has to be transformed. Uh, Francis Schaeffer was a great Christian apologist in his day and time. Uh, when I was in college, he wrote many, many books. If you've never studied him, he's now with the Lord, probably one of the greatest Christian thinkers who's ever existed, um, Francis Schaeffer. Uh, he wrote a book called True Spirituality, great book on what is spirituality. And here's what he says. He says, the external uh, follows the internal, and the external is a product of the internal. Thoughts are first, and they, they produce the external. We are, as Christians, to be transformed by the renewing of the mind that's internal. That's internal. So Eligus is going to tell you, no, just don't do all these things over here. No, that's not spirituality. Spirituality is what happens in the mind, in, inside you first. And so in verses 12 through 22 of uh, chapter 5 of Thessalonians, Paul gave, because uh, I, I counted them, uh, 19 commands, 19 commands uh, to help change the inside of you. Um, I have a book. Uh, I have a, well, I ran out of I ran out of space in my office for my books, and so I have a, like, a pedestal, like a circular bookshelf next to my desk that spins, so I, I can just roll over to it, spin it, grab the books I want that I use the most, roll back. You don't even have to stand up. It's really awesome. That's my PT, sliding over there. Um, but I have a book that is uh, one of my most well-worn books. It's called Hans, H-A-N-S, Parsing Guide to the New Testament. And uh, Hans, uh, God love him, he parsed every verb in the New Testament. God love him. Because uh, I used to have to memorize them all. So when you want to count up how many imperatives are in a given book, uh, well, this is the book that you use. You look at Hans Parsing Guide. So I went to par- his, and I counted up every imperative, 19 imperatives. What are the imperatives for? The present tense imperatives calling for internal change. So take a, take a look at yourself uh, as, before we get into verse 23. Um, I'm kind of like, prepare the ground before we look at, at holiness. It starts in, inside first, right? In your mind. You have to make up in your mind that I'm going to be transformed in how I think. So uh, he just talked in this passage about, uh, uh, you know, rejoice at all times and all things, give thanks, all, the, all that kind of stuff. You're thinking to yourself, how in the world am I going to do those kinds of things? Well, you have to decide in your mind, I, I, I need my mind transformed from how I typically act when something bad happens. Case in point, a couple of years ago, and I, Liz and I were on uh, uh, Interstate 395, driving to our favorite Mexican restaurant. Okay, California. I grew up on the border. I love Mexican food. 
But then I found out it's really El Salvadorian. And I'm like, it's another country, but that's a whole other matter. Um, so we're, you know, we're on 395. It's about six o'clock. It's a winter evening. It's dark. We're cruising, bumper to bumper traffic. I'm in my four-door black uh, Volvo. Now, bear in mind, I'm a weird guy when it comes to cars because I like cars. I'm from California. I, I don't like door dings. Ask anybody on staff. If you go to lunch with me, you burn off all the calories of lunch walking to my car because <laughs> I don't like door dings, okay? So I have a, you know, a car with no door dings, and, it, and it's a 2012, so, but I've only got like 53,000 miles on this car, so I only drive like 4,000 miles a year. So, so we're on the freeway, and we're cruising along. Everything's great. We're going about 15 miles an hour, bumper to bumper tra traffic. I think, it, is it Edsel, Edsel Road? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm going to exit there. I'm going to drive over to Los Tios and have some uh, carne asada, et cetera. So everything's cool, except for the guy coming up in my rearview mirror going like 40. I realized, doing the math in my head, he ain't going to make it. <laughs> and so I tell my wife, brace for impact. <laughs> Boom, he hits me. And I'm like, serious? Just going for Mexican food? I get hit on 395. So I pull over. He pulls over. And this little Hispanic dude jumps out, very broken English. And I grew up on the border. Most of my friends are Hispanic. I know a little bit of Spanish. And he's jumping about, no, no, no problema, no problema. And I'm like, it's a problem. <laughs> Mucho grande. <laughs> you just hit my car, man. Um, you know, I'm thinking to myself, I wonder how many prisoners are going to be driving by here right now. You know, it's just like, how's Marty doing over there? Um, so the guy jumps out, and in his broken English, he tells me that he, he works for Nationwide. No problema. Me Nationwide. <laughs> I'm like, serious? Um, he gets Nationwide uh, headquarters on the phones. I mean, they know him, you know, and hands the phone to me. And uh, in my glove, glove box, I put together uh, for all my cars uh, a sheet of paper of what, what information you need in a wreck. Because if you get in a wreck, you're kind of emotional and not thinking straight. So I printed up everything you need to know for a wreck. Just pull it out. Fill in all the boxes, and you're good. So I, I got that out, put that on the back of my trunk. I can't get my trunk open because he jacked up the back of my car. Uh, He's got me on Nationwide talking to her. She's, you know, those people, they never have a, there's no emotion in the voice. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. You know, name, yeah. what exactly happened. You know, even that kind of stuff is like serious. Um, and so I give her all the information, you know, uh, you know, an estimator, somebody will call you tomorrow. You know, okay, great, click. So the next day, so I, you know, I tell, you know, Jesus, whatever his name was, I tell him, you know, Bio Condios, my friend. Uh, he gets in his car and I take off in my car. A lady calls me the next morning. You know, one of their nationwide people. And this, I'm getting to a spiritual thing, if you can, you're wondering. Uh, and so, so the lady's like, uh, you know, uh, you know, I'm just following up with the wreck last night. I realized one of our individuals hit you, you know, give me what happened, you know, blah, blah, blah. So I'm telling her all that stuff. And uh, uh, she says, so we're going to file a claim for your car. Mm, no, no, I, I don't want to file a claim. Excuse me. Uh, you were rear-ended. Uh, yeah. But I got up this morning, and my daughter had a wreck when she, I bought her her first car. Uh, she had a wreck, and we had to have the car fixed. And so when I went to the, the dealers or to the place where they repaired the car, I, uh, I bought a bottle of this commercial-grade polish that they use in car shops. Uh, and I applied that to the back of my car, and I buffed off all the stuff that was messed up with my car so you can't see hit my car. And then I was able to get my trunk open. And so I'm actually, I'm, I'm actually good. Silence on the other end. She's like, sir, everyone files a claim. 
I said, well, I'm, I'm not filing a claim. I, I'm not, in my mind, spiritual. I've already made up. I'm, I'm not filing a claim. That would be not ethical. So I was like, I'm not going to file a claim. She goes, well, I've done this for 30 years. Everyone files a claim. You were rear-ended. Uh, well, I'm not filing a claim because there's, there's, it, there's nothing wrong here. Um, and so she's like totally mesmerized. And so she can't figure out, I won't file a claim. So I finally told her, I'm a Christian. You're a Christian? Yeah, I'm a Christian. Wow, uh, amazing. And I said, well, not just a Christian. I'm, I'm like a pastor too. <laughs> oh, you're a man of God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hallelujah, hallelujah. That's her. That's her talking. I'm like, serious. I didn't, I must have spent 30 minutes talking about her marriage. I kid you not. She goes, this is a sovereign day. (laughs) She says, my marriage is jacked up. And and God made that guy run into you so you would call me so we could have a conversation so you could pray for me. Do you see what I'm saying? Now, if I had not been transformed in my thinking and I got rendered by Jesus, wouldn't have been a pretty thing alongside the road, right? Yelling and screaming, half the church would have driven by, etc. So spirituality, <laughs> spirituality starts where? In your mind internal. Then when something happens, realize God's in that. He's got a rendezvous for you. You just need to pay attention because you're going to get to touch somebody's life because you trust in him. So when he says to rejoice, rejoice. Because even in that, it's like, okay, I'm going to rejoice. You know, there's a divine rendezvous in this. You know, it's just God does. So with that in mind, notice what Paul says in verse 23 about, well, how you should live. Now may the God of peace himself do what to you? Sanctify you. How much? Eh, 20%. No, entirely. And may your spirit, soul, and body be preserved complete without blame until when? And the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is the Greek word parousia, which is the same word he used in chapter 4, 13 to 18 to talk about the parousia of Jesus, the appearance of Jesus for the coming of the church. So Paul's wish for this church is that they would be holy until the appearance of Christ. This is interesting. We need to dig into this. Uh, exactly what does he say? Because you're looking at yourself going, wow, man, how, how, how am I going to get holy? I am a, I'm a glass half full kind of person. I'm just negative by nature. I thought that was my spiritual gift. Uh, no, 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 that's, no, 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 you need to learn to rejoice, to be thankful. To be, well, how can I do all those things? It says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. Now, you can't see it in the English text, uh, but the very first word in the Hebrew text is the word autus. Autus is the word himself. So the very first word in the Greek text is himself. But if you read himself at the beginning of an English, you're like, huh? This doesn't make any sense. Well, it does in Greek because it's emphatic. Why, why did he put it there? Why did he put the personal pronoun up there? Because he wants you to understand that the holiness that you're striving for, that you blow it because you get rear-ended by Jesus, and, and you, oh, I just, man, I am not being spiritual on this one. Well, he says God himself is going to help you be sanctified entirely. Aren't you glad? Only the front row is glad? Aren't you glad it's the Lord himself who's working to make you holy? Five people are excited. I, I am. Now he says, now, since he's talking about this to make you entirely holy, then this suggests that, well, it's a process. But so sanctification is both a process and a position. Do you understand this? It's a position and, a, and it's a process. Hebrews 12, uh, 10, 14 tells you both of these things. Uh, he says, for by one offering, he, God, has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. 
That translation in NAS stands for the New American Standard. That's a, that's a decent translation. But, but that present tense participle, uh, to be made holy, uh, is a perpetual thing. It's, it, and that's brought out better, the, the verbiage here, by the New, Mer New International Version, where it says, for by one sacrifice, Christ, death on the cross, he has made perfect forever those who are being made. So, holy. So what you have here is, well, I'm made perfect, but then I'm also in a process. So which tells you sanctification or holiness is both a position and it's a process. Um, how do you get into heaven? Well, because I have the position of holiness, right? Now, when I stand before Christ and I'm judged for how well I ran the spiritual race as a, as a Christian, well, that, that's, my, that's my practical walk, not my position. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Uh, Paul says, he made him who knew no sin, which is Jesus, to be sin on our behalf because his death was substitutionary. He died in our place. Why? Well, that he might become the righteousness of God in him. Where do you get your righteous, righteousness from? Jesus. The one who died for you on the cross paid the penalty for your sin. Once you come to him in faith and say, Lord, save me a sinner, he forgives you and gives you his righteousness. It's positional. 1 Corinthians 1.30, Paul says, For by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us, speaking to Jesus, wisdom from God and righteousness and same Greek word Paul uses here in Thessalonians, sanctification and redemption. So I don't know how you feel about prepositions. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, one person is with me. So prepositions are extremely important. Uh, the preposition in the first clause, in Christ Jesus, uh, the, the preposition, uh, well, in Greek, it sounds the same way. It's, it's, it's E-N in, in Greek, but, um, and it's I-N in English, but it, it means a sphere. So there's only two kinds of people. Uh, the, the preposition to be out of something is ek. So you're either out of something or you're in something. So when you apply that in a theological realm, you're either in Jesus because you're saved. So you're in the sphere of Jesus, never to be kicked out of that sphere of Jesus, or you're out of Jesus. So when I wasn't a Christian back in 1969, I was out. But once I trusted Christ as my savior, I'm in. And he says, by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. And when you're in Christ Jesus, he gives you all of those things. He gives you righteousness. He gives you his sanctification. He gives you his redemption. It's your position. Position. Positional holiness. I have to stop and ask you, do you have positional holiness? Because the only way you get it is you bow before Christ as Lord and Savior and say, Lord, save me. And he forgives you, wipes your slate clean, and gives you many wonderful things. And one of them is his holiness. Now, that's not what Paul's talking about. Paul's talking about the process. Um, he's, he's talking about the practical side of your faith. Uh, and the, basically, spirituality is uh, it's taking your practical walk and matching it with your high lofty position. That's what it is. So, that, so like, why, are, why do you come to church? Well, you probably come to church because my walk needs to be fine-tuned as a Christian. And as I hear the word of God expounded and taught and, and, and what it's calling for, then I need to abide by that and fine-tune myself. Uh, so if it says be thankful in all things, well, I haven't really been doing that. And then you go out and you try to learn to be thankful. Then you're matching your position with your practice. That's, that's spirituality. How are you doing on that one, by the way? Fantastic. Fantastic? Really? She's serious. That's good to hear. Thank you. Um, how many would say, I need some fine-tuning? Okay. Oh, you too? Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Um, and, and so it's just that, it's that it's constantly, it's like, yeah. So what does it mean to be sanctified or to be holy? Hagiazo is the word. Um, according to, uh, uh, there's a uh, Greek lexicon. I have the old version that's fallen apart and a new version. Um, aren't, uh, it's called bag, Bauer Arndt and Gingrich's uh, Greek lexicon. But uh, I looked up the word hagiazo for holy, uh, and it means to be uh, that which is, in, uh, it means to be, uh, uh, you eliminate in your life that uh, which is contrary or incompatible with holiness as, as described by God. God's the standard. And he says, anything that is not this standard is not holy. And so it's pursuing holiness is what does God say is holy? Not what do I think is holy? What do I, my culture says is holy. What does God say? And when, when I eliminate that in my life that doesn't match that, I became practically holy in my walk. So how are you doing? Um, now it says here, and in in, in, when Paul makes this statement, about growing up in the faith positionally, making your practice match your position. Notice what he says here. He says, uh, I want him to sanctify you entirely that he may, uh, that, that your spirit and your soul and your body are preserved complete. Now, if you're paying attention, you probably have an issue with that. Uh, I did, because I'm reading that going, I'm going to say my body, my soul, and my spirit. So am I, am I trichotomous in my construction or am I dichotomous? And you're like going, huh? I'm still f- trying to figure out that participle thing a while ago. Okay. <laughs> okay. So let's think about it. So are you made up of three components or two components? Um, does it matter? No one's brave enough to say. Pro- uh, pro- probably not. But the bottom, before I explain this to you, either position that you take, you're going to spend eternity in one of two destinations. That's why it matters. Okay, so a person who is a trichotomous believes, well, he just said body, soul, and spirit. So man must be composed of these three things. Uh, Wayne Grudem, uh, I told you last week you should buy a systematic theology and you should read them. This is an illustration of why. Uh, because I've, how many times do you hear a discussion about man's trichotomous construction? Not, are you serious? Not, not often. So here's what he says in his systematic theology. It says, according to a trichotomous, man's soul includes his intellect, his emotions, and his will. He says they maintain that all people have such a soul and that uh, the different elements of the soul can either serve God uh, or be yielded to sin. They, a trichotomist, argues that man's spirit is a higher faculty that actually comes alive when a person becomes a Christian. He says a person's spirit then would be the part that most directly worship and praise to God. So you have body, soul, your suki, your psyche, and your spirit. If you're not a Christian, it's dead. Once you become a Christian, it's made alive, and you're now trichotomous. Um, I am not a trichotomous. I'm a dichotomous. Why? Uh, because uh, spirit and soul are used interchangeably in the, in the scriptures. Do you follow? So they, if you get down to dividing man up into three components, it's kind of interesting because spirit and soul are used in the same way in the same context. Uh, case in point, John 12, 27, Jesus says, now is my soul troubled, soul. Same context, chapter 13, verse 21. He says, my spirit is troubled. See, he's using the similar terminology in the same way, in the same context, because the words are interchangeable. In Matthew 10, 28, uh, Jesus said, don't, don't fear those who can kill the body. But he said, uh, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Well, if man was trichotomous, why didn't, he, why didn't he throw in the third term? Because in Jesus' mind, the spirit and the soul are one and the same thing. 
And so dichotomy. So if you're getting distracted about my discussion about sanctification, because you're too worried about man's trichotomous or dichotomous construction, hopefully I've helped you so we can get back to what we need to talk about. Because <laughs> I know how this church is. If I don't address it, someone's going to write me after lunch today. You, did, you said nothing about trichotomy. So now I have, okay? So now we're moving on. What's the most important thing of his first point? Be holy. Be holy in my position? No, I got that. Be holy in my daily walk. Uh, he adds to that, verse 24. Second thing he tells this church in his parting words, have faith, have faith. Notice what he says. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. <laughs> What's he talking about there? This sounds a lot like Philippians chapter uh, 1, verse 6, where Paul says, For I am confident of this very thing that he, God, who began a good work in you, will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. What's he talking about? Talk about your salvation. So if you, I've been asked this a million times. I'll just give you my answer so you don't have to ask me. Uh, you know, do you believe in eternal security? It's taught in the Bible all over the place. How do I know that? Well, here's a case in point. Faithful is he who calls you because he called me to be saved. I accepted the call, came to him in faith, uh, and he's going to bring it to pass. Like my salvation that he called me to, he's going to make sure that it's realized. So I'm not going to lose it. Remember, I'm in Jesus. I'm not out of Jesus. Uh, now, I might not act like a Christian, and if you have children, sometimes they don't act like your children, right? And you just tell your husband, they're from your side of the family. I just <laughs> don't know where they came from, you know? But, but they're still your children, right? And if you're, you don't have children? And if your daughter came to you, and, and she's totally disobedient, and, and just totally off the rails, and she came to you, Dad, I so disgraced you. I am just, I am just not your daughter, sweetie. <laughs> it doesn't matter how much you disgrace me. You're always my child. I'll never disown you, Right? right? Trying to help the children here. <laughs> yeah, your parents are with you. Sounds like it. They're with you. Yeah. So, you, you know, once you're in that family, you're in that family. So, once you're in God's family, you're in Jesus. And he is faithful. He's not going to desert you. Don't, he doesn't start a project and not finish it. Have you ever lived near someone who didn't finish projects? <laughs> if it's you, you're just being real quiet now. But, did he call my wife? Has he been by our house? I don't I bought a house one time. Well, they're our very first home. Uh, we had been married like 13 years, and we were able to finally buy a California house. And um, so I went to one of my elders on our board at this church where I was at, uh, in, where I, you know, the, my last church. And one of my board members owned 55 homes in California. Yeah, he's a very, very wealthy man. And so he's a very smart man. And uh, so I went to him and said, hey, Bob, you know, it's my first home. You know, well, how should I approach this? He said, you know, buy a fixer-upper in a really nice neighborhood and then just fix it up. <laughs> it's pretty simple. Good business model. So that's what, exactly what we did. We found a fixer-upper in a, in a nice little community. And I spent like, I don't know, eight or nine years with all my friends, you know, new drywall, new tile, new kitchen. I mean, new, I mean, we did, we, uh, I brought friends that were electricians in. We redid electricity. We, we did the whole house. Um, but next door, <laughs> I had a gentleman who had every tool a man would want but no desire to finish any project he started. And I, I, th th this guy was a great neighbor, a great neighbor. I mean, he'd give you the shirt off his back. He just wouldn't finish stuff. So I'm, I'm type A, right? Like, you know, I'm super organized. I, eh, things have to be done this way. And so I watch him build a, a, a pool house uh, around his pool pump and stuff, like a, a house. 
And I'm thinking, oh, cool. I don't have to listen to the pool pump anymore. And so he builds this whole house. Uh, and windows, the whole shebang, a door and everything. Never installed a door. Never installed windows. Put plastic over the windows. They ripped. They flapped in the wind all the time. Never painted it. And I saw this thing all the time. I'm like, serious? I got to get a spray gun. I got to shoot that thing, spray it. It's like, finish the pool. Then he went to another project and then another project. And I'm looking around his house all the time going, dude, finish something here. Then he installs, he tears off the whole front part of his house, pours a bigger porch, brings out the roof line of his house that peeked over his porch and he brought it out. And instead of it looking like this, it was like this. I'm like, oh, I almost need a counseling. Every time I walk by there, it's just... Something's wrong with the chi here. I mean, it's just... And um, then he spent like 10 grand on a door, beautiful door, installed the door. I helped him pick it up and put it in place, blah, blah, blah. Never finished the door. Never. It weathered. It looked terrible. It fell apart. And I would walk by here and think, this is a living sermon illustration. I am so glad Jesus is not like that when it comes to my salvation. Well, I just kind of hope we kind of get it together may never finish it. You may get to heaven. Aren't you, aren't you glad the Lord doesn't do that? Because he says, faithful is he who called you. That, that he's going to make sure that he's going to bring it to pass, that you're going to stand before him. You ever have those moments when you feel like you may not stand before him? And he's like, I oh, know, I got it. I, I got it. I got you because I, I called you. Now, this leads to another problem, like the dichotomy, trichotomy thing. This leads to a whole other issue that the super analytical, hermeneutical Bible study people who are going, whoa. And I don't know if you've seen it, but it says, faithful is he who calls you. Hmm. I got some questions. Does, call, does God call sinners to be saved? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Does that call a general call? Yeah. yeah. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So it says it's a general call to the world to be saved, Right? Right. So he, he does call. So uh, he called me in 69. I totally got the fact I was a sinner and he was calling me. Um, does he choose people to be saved? Says he does. So if you, if you ask me, do you believe in election? Yeah. God chooses. If you ask me, do, do you believe in predestination? Mm-hmm. Uh, do you understand uh, that man has a free will? Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Do you understand how all those things go together? No, I, no, I don't. <laughs> Uh, have I studied it in great detail? Uh-huh, yeah. And I've said it to some of the greatest scholars in the country, and they don't really know because it's a mystery. Uh, but God does call people, and God does uh, call people to be saved. Uh, Romans 8, here's what Paul says. We know that God causes all things to work together to, for good to those who love God, to those who are oh, called according to his purpose. And then he adds on, for whom he foreknew. Because he had to foreknow you were going to trust him because he's omniscient, right? And if, he, if you faked him out and got saved and he didn't know that was going to happen, then he's not on a mission. He's not God. You follow? So he foreknew. Because he foreknew you would be saved, then he did what? Predest- he, he, he chose a destiny for you uh, to become conformed to the image of his son. Uh, why? Well, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And then he throws in, and whom he predestined, then he also called, and whom he called, those he justified in his court of law, Romans 5, 1 and following, uh, and whom he justified, well, one day you're going to see glory. You see what I'm saying? Uh, so when Paul says, faithful is he who calls you, the Thessalonians were part of God's elect. They just didn't know until Paul got there and gave them the gospel and gave the general call of the gospel, and they, and they received that. 
So, but you say, whoa, whoa, wait. Is it, so it doesn't seem fair if God's calling some, but he's not calling the other people. Well, it's totally fair that he calls people to be saved because when man sinned in the Garden of Eden, fairness would have been, I will allow no human into heaven. That's fair because he's absolutely holy. But he's, he said, no, I will send a redeemer and I will save a few. So I, I just relish in the fact that, Lord, you saved me. Thank you for saving me. I do not understand predestination, election, all the complexities of it. I've read, I don't know, probably thousands of pages on said subject. It is a mystery. Uh, but, but I leave that in your realm because I am limited in intellect and I'm limited in dimensionality. So are you. And God is not limited in intellect and God is not limited in dimensionality. So I think a lot of it is a dimensional problem. Uh, in philosophy, it's called a category mistake. That I take my limited category and I throw it on God's category. It's not the same category. So God can know all things, predestined things, and I still have a free will. Because when I read the Bible, it sure looks like I have a free will, right? I choose. It looks like I'm choosing and I'm not a robot. And the other thing is, it says that God is just. So if God were to throw me into hell because I, I didn't have the ability to choose him, how could I say he's just when he never gave me a chance? You see? But the fact that he is just, and I do make a choice either for him or against him, my, my eternal destination is my choice. I have a free will choice. How does that coincide with his foreknowledge and predestination? Ask him when you see him. Okay? And what's amazing is even your choosing of him, uh, well, he, well, here's what Jesus says, Matthew, or John 6, 44. No man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So even you coming... Like when I came as a nine-year-old child, even me telling the pastor what's going on in my life, he says, Marty, it's the Holy Spirit talking to you. He's calling you. Are you going to come? Even that drawing of the Spirit comes from his good hand. So you're not going to figure out all the complexities of those things, um, but you must make sure that you make a decision. You made that decision yet? Uh, Paul says, God is faithful. If he called you, you're going to be glorified one day. Don't ever doubt that. Then he's going to say, you should get prayed up. Verse 25, pray up. Pray up. Pray up for who? Who's he say to pray for? Brethren, or we could add sisters. I don't think it's sister. I I think it's brothers and sisters. Pray for us. Pray for who? Paul and and his missionary team. So translate in our vernacular, pray for your pastors. I'll put it to you this way. The church, can, any church can be no greater, uh, the, the pastor can do no greater job than w- w- what the people do when they pray for him. In fact, the, the effectiveness of a church is related, directly related to the people praying for their pastoral staff. Do you pray for your pastoral staff? Uh, here, there's a lot of people who pray for their pastoral staff. Paul says, uh, Paul, you can read his letters. He asks, he tells the Christians all over the place that I'm praying for you. And we, as your pastoral staff, do pray for you. But do you pray for us? I know many of you do. So we've been able to accomplish much for God because many of you pray for us. On Sunday mornings, when I get here, there's people that pray for us. There's people who stop me in the hallway and pray for me every, every Sunday. There's people that pray for pastoral staff because it's a spiritual thing. Um, pray for us. I, I went down and started writing down as a pastor all the reasons why you would want to pray for a pastor. And I can't give them all to you because it's lunchtime. <laughs> what time is it? It's 11.55? Okay. So we'll be done here about 12.25 uh, with my list. No. Here's some of the reasons. Uh, I'll just give you a couple reasons why you should pray for your, your pastors. Uh, number one, 
they face the brunt of what the devil's doing. And I don't even know how to explain this to you, but sometimes I can sense the evil, sense evil, because I've dealt with evil many times. Uh, you deal with the devil. Uh, pray for your pastors because of that. Uh, they can be tempted after being worn down by external or internal uh, conflict to compromise. Trust me, I have been there. Uh, and you get wore down, wore down, wore down, wore down. You just find whatever. You don't want to get there. You want to stand on truth. Or you're tempted to just get in your vehicle and drive and not come back. I've been there before as a pastor. Um, pray for your pastors when they face uh, the temptation to do that. Um, they who pour their lives into church uh, people, to the work and to the lost, they pour their lives constantly. Uh, if they're not daily getting fed by the word and by the Lord, they can become spiritually dry and nothing's left over. So pray that they get filled up. Uh, pray that the, they can be tempted to float intellectually because who's really watching what they're doing? And so they can just float intellectually. They've already gone to college. They've already gone to four years of grad school. Uh, they can float on what they studied. Uh, but, but that's not what God calls them to. He calls them to be students of the word. Is there a difference between fresh bread and stale bread? Yeah. I don't know about you. I'd rather have the fresh bread stuff. So pray that the pastor, uh, that, that you're under his care, stays in the word. Um, they need wisdom for uh, how to care for their church in the times in which we live. How to prepare that church to minister to the community that has many complex issues, which are very hard to sort through some of those issues. They need wisdom. So pray for them. And on and on goes the list. Uh, I had one of my friends, he, he was an excellent pastor. I mean, just quintessential pastor. Uh, and one day he came home uh, and his wife uh, served him divorce papers uh, and said, uh, uh, it's over. I can't be married to you any longer because you live for the church. That church is your job. Uh, it's like an affair. And we can't even go on vacation and you don't feel phone calls and text messages and emails from the church. We have no time as a couple. So what was the wife saying? Uh, you neglected me as the wife. It's a temptation. It's a to pray for your pastors that they know how to balance church life and marital life. So they have a great marriage. And on and on it goes. Um, pray up. Pray for your pastors. Continue to pray for your pastors. Our church will do greater, even greater things when you pray for those who spiritually lead you. Then Paul says, show love <laughs> in verse 26. I, I love this verse. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. When I was in high school, I try to get mileage out of what the Bible says here. Um, <laughs> it, was, it was like a joke in our youth group, you know? Man, I love that verse. Uh, no, he says, holy kiss. This is a spiritual thing. So, I don't know, you've been to Italy? Yeah. Or a country like that. They're, they're very expressive on how they say hi. Like even the men, right? It's like, what do they do? Yeah, kiss on both cheeks. I don't do this. Bit weird, but they do it, you know. But that's just how they do it. Same thing like in Israel. They're they're like they're very expressive. So that was Paul's culture, you know. You know, show show some affection. So that was a holy kiss, like a kiss on each cheek. You know, it's hard to argue with somebody or treat somebody in the wrong way as a brother and sister in Christ when you're up close and personal, showing affection to each other. See, so show affection. So what are your options? Because you're you're freaking out if you're an introvert at this point. I know because I'm an introvert. So you're thinking, man, I. I can't do that. I can't, I can't get up close. I can't touch. I can't do that. So, what, so, okay, what are your options to show affection? Handshake. Handshake. Yeah, a, a handshake. And I'm just sorry. Not the dish rag thing. You know, like, like there's nothing there. I mean, give them something. I mean, don't break their hand, but just something. Okay, handshake. Okay, what else? High five. You're a child of the 60s. Yes. 
high five. Uh, if you're up more to potter speed, fist bump is good, right? What else can you do to show love and affection? You can hug them. I mean, we're not talking bone crunching, <laughs> you know, just quick, 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 quick hug. Okay, what else? What? <laughs> yeah, wave. Yeah, wave. I love you, man. Yeah, whatever. I don't know what state you're from, but that's interesting. That's good. Um, <laughs> wave. Yeah. Uh, put your arm around the person, right? Just give them a hug, etc. But there's lots of ways to show affection. And Paul's just saying, show affection. Now, we have a very affectionate church. At least I think we do. There's a lot of love here. Uh, it's not a cold, uh, uh, sterile place to be in. You just know people love you here. You know, I just, there's some guys, there's some guys here, they're really into the expressive man hug thing. I just know it. When they're coming at me, I'm like, I got to brace myself, you know, <laughs> you know, and they know me. If I'm going to shake their hand, they're going to get most of my grip. They, they tell me, even when I came in here, I'm prepared when I approach you, that, that type of thing. But it's just showing love, right? So show love. And then lastly, he says in verse 27, read and heed. He says, I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. Just in our vernacular, read the Bible. Read it. Read it. Read it. Study it. Meditate on it. I don't know when you read it. I get up in the mornings uh, and read. I got up. This is what I do. I mean, I get up and I read it. I could say, I don't need to read it. I've read that before. No, I, I need to read it. It's fresh word, fresh bread. Read the word of God. Study the word of God. Meditate on it. Pray over it. And God will use it to transform you to his image. Read the word. And then he closes with a benediction. What's he say? Hakaris, tukurio humon, Yesu Christu, meth humon. It rhymes, doesn't it? Because it's a paranomasia, which I talked to you about last week. <laughs> Remember paranomasia? It rhymes so you can memorize it. What, what does it say in English? The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. What does the United States need? Grace. Grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. That's what they need. Humility to understand they're a sinner who needs his grace. What would a church need more than the grace of Jesus to be showered all over it? That humility that we are sinners who are saved and we're here to give the gospel of grace. So I pronounce that benediction over you. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And may it truly be. Why don't you stand and we'll pray and go to lunch together. <laughs> we should do that. Show up at one restaurant. Yeah. <laughs> Let's pray. God, thank you for the opportunity to study this great book. Uh, you are coming again, and your coming is imminent. And might we truly live in such a way that we are blameless when we stand before you, that you have nothing to say uh, about what we should have done, but you are more than excited about the level of our walk. Help us to grow up in the faith, to overcome sin, uh, and to have great power through the Holy Spirit, uh, to have the fruits of the Spirit. And for the lost among us that aren't saved, may they understand how important it is to be in Christ through acceptance of you as the Christ. In Christ's name, amen.